You're listening to episode 37 of Fear the Boots interview series. In this episode, we talk with Vincent Venturella. Running time for this episode is 53 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is John. This is Brodor. And joining us today is Vincent Venturella. Hello, everybody. Super glad to be here. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Well, thank you for being here. We're glad to have you. And (laughs) Vince has a couple claims to fame. There's a reason we have him on the show, but I want to make sure we cover all the bases. So, Vince, could you give a real quick sort of resume of who you are, what you've done, where people should know you from? Sure, absolutely. Well, it all began long ago on a small farm in Texarkana. No, wait, that's probably going back too far. All right. Bored mom and dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, uh, so I am a game designer. I've been doing so for uh, about 10 years now. I have a small uh, indie press company called Ventureland Games, and we've made several role-playing games since 2004, the very first of which I'm sure everybody who listens to Fear the Boot and the and the the all of you would have absolutely hated because it was part of that D20 boom and it was I won't say the name of the game but it might somehow rhyme with Matto Fun and on sort of a D20 system so I'm sure you would hate that to no end. <laughs> Some of us came around on Matto Fun. I actually played it years later and, and had a good I've time. always liked Shadowrun. It's just Chad got belligerent, and then John got belligerent but repented, and somehow that's become, like, canon for the show's 15 historical hosts. That, that is all I played in high school. Yeah. I love it. So, all right, continue. I, I'll save my spiel on D20 since it's really kind of that sun has set. So then I uh, we, we made a, a very fun superhero game that was also D20 and published a couple of other games late in 4th edition. And then most recently, I published a game called NGS, uh, which is the narrative game system, which I'm very proud of. And they could find it on VentureLandGames.com, which is my game, my company's website. And it's a extremely rules light, rules very, very light, uh, narratively focused collaborative role-playing game yeah and we will link his website in the show notes of course if you want to check out ngs which i hope you do i've actually checked out ngs and i like what i see so if you want to check that out look in the show notes for a link to that and we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about ngs but actually vince you have a more specific claim to fame uh, which is the reason why we are chatting with you and i have a funny story about why we're not also chatting with someone else, but I'll let you go first. What do we got you here for? Sure. So the other thing outside of my own personal company is that I've also done various freelancing for WotC over the years for various editions of D&D starting in third ed. And then that culminated in consulting on what at the time when I started was D&D Next and eventually became the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons. So if your listeners open their player's handbook to page two and look under the additional consulting or additional consultants or whatnot, uh, you will see my name there in its appropriate alphabetical order place. Yeah, it's actually kind of funny. I saw somebody that was going off on us earlier today for talking about game systems we know nothing about. Which is funny, because on the one time we mentioned D&D 5e, we really didn't say anything about it, except to admit we knew nothing about it. And then he goes on to admit he's never listened to our podcast. So there was a layer. How does that happen? How does somebody say, I don't listen to your podcast, but by the way, this is why you suck. And specifically, the reason you suck is because you talk about things you don't know anything about. Yeah, that that's <laughs> that, I'm not going to make you edit. That's BS. Yeah. They so, listen to the show. So, and they love it. Just like slamming bitches, they're out there <laughs> loving it. Damn it, Brodor. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah, so, okay. So, anyway, let's push past that. We, we've offended enough people for the first five minutes of the show. So, let's push past that. I'm looking at my watch. I'm watching for the next five minutes. Okay. So, we got a bunch of questions from our listeners, specifically about D&D 5th Edition, that they asked both on our forums and on our Facebook group. You know, I think I should link all of our social media stuff in the show notes just for anyone who's not clear how to follow us and to get this kind of stuff in. Because sometimes before shows, we do query our audience and say, hey, what is it you want us to talk about or what is it you want to hear about? So we'd love to come back and talk about that. But we've got a bunch of questions here. 
that we're going to go over with Vince. But before we get to that, I've got two things I want to talk to you, Vince, about. And the first one is actually not related to D&D. A guy by the name of Cedric, uh, thinking that he was funny, which he was, by the way, <laughs> his first question he threw in had nothing to do with D&D. Vince, he wanted to know what your favorite mech is in Battletech and what your stance is on the clans. So that's the spot where we're going to begin. All right. So, yeah, that's a great question. And I Oh, it is. I, I think, let me start here. I, I want to answer this in a roundabout way first. I'll try not to labor on too long, but I'll say that I think you can tell a lot about a person based on what their favorite mech is. I, I really think that should be the true litmus test mm. of whether or not I like you. Like, yeah, I can pretty easily tell. If you pick some garbage assault clan tech, you know, just fastest, hardest hitting piece of well, I won't I, again, I'll, I'll also try to not make you edit Then I'm sure that you're not my type of Battletech player. But my pick will be the Black Knight. And I'm talking like old school Black Knight, underarm, PPC, all energy weapons meant to go deep, go long. Its only concern is heat. And hey, heat is just heat. It goes away. If you can get one with a sword strapped on it, all the better. Uh, I fell in love with it when I read the story. I don't. I really don't remember what book it was in, but there was a great duel between like the Black Knight and another mech, and the Black Knight gets his you know his PPC blown off and everything, and it was just this wonderful back and forth that I read very early in playing BattleTech, and it made me love the whole world of, of MechWarrior and of BattleTech. It does sound like there needs to be an online quiz for this. That instead of trying to go along spirit animal or your astrological, your zodiac sign. Or which Harry Potter house the sorting hat would put you into. Every single time. (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen this quiz yet? Yes. That you put in your mech and it tells things about you. So like if I gave you a spread of three, could you guess my personality? Probably, yeah. Three would be more than enough. Okay. If you you drop me like Hatchet Man, Locust, and something, I'm going to be like, okay, I know where this guy's coming from. Okay. So, So let me give you my three here. And I'll stick to somewhat older ones. The Jenner variant that drops the SRM-4 for armor. I forget the exact variant name on that. The Enforcer and the Marauder. All right. Okay. I got it. Okay. So so look into your crystal ball. Mm -hmm. What do you see about me? All right. So what I see about you. So all of those picks are pretty solid but focused medium more like utility mechs that they've got good durability in their weight class, but they also have a purpose. They're meant to do something in the field. So what that tells me is that you like to play smartly. You like a challenge on the field and you want to win based on your intelligence and your piloting. I don't mean the role of your piloting skill. I mean, you as like taking the role of the pilot and be essential to the turning of the flow of the narrative based on your intelligence, not on your ability to punch over every other mech or just shoot it with, you know, 10 LRM-20s. That is surprisingly accurate. Okay, so I'm impressed by that, and I think we are going to have to have you make like a quiz on Quizly or something like that (laughs) to handle this. But we're going to ask the other question here before we get into D&D, which is what is your opinion of the clans in Battletech? Yeah, so, you know, you, you you had sent me this kind of beforehand, and I love the clans as a thing. So one of the fascinating things to me about Battletech and, and MechWarrior is that it came out of this small subgenre of science fiction that was that thought, what if we go out into space and all we find is ourselves, right? What if the universe really is empty or, or anything that's an alien is so far away we never actually find it? The problem is sci-fi games want aliens. You know, you look like Star Wars or people all over in bars and weird puppet faces and the clans were a fantastic way to do the other without actually needing to introduce aliens they were alien beings in their personality the way they acted the way they organized themselves the way they fought on the battlefield and certainly in the nature of their technology and they were a fantastic antagonist because classically antagonists need to be more powerful than your hero Right. And so suddenly the your heroes became the inner sphere who were weak and had ground their tech into dirt. And that then made the entire inner sphere, no matter what house you liked previously, a compelling protagonist because they were now facing down a much stronger antagonist. that was also the other and weird and wasn't as relatable as a lot of the personalities of the houses. 
That's an interesting defense of the clans because having come into the scene uh, after it was basically already over, WizKids had taken over, Faza had been sued, etc., etc., all the grognard angle I had ever heard, and that includes coming from you and Chad, Dan, was that the clans were this pointlessly OP, after-the-fact faction that was introduced to be stronger and better than everyone so that you would have to buy them. I've never heard them defended and depicted as the classical antagonist, which, of course, must appear to be more powerful than the protagonist. I disagree with that, and I can offer you evidence to the contrary. I do agree that was Chad's angle, and Chad being Chad did not always let me expound upon my angle. But I have always preferred to run games in the early clan invasion for that exact reason. In fact, you ought to know that the one campaign I've been desperately for years trying to run is about an inner sphere group trying to overcome the clanners in an underdog battle. But you have categorically screamed about how much you hate the clans, how stupid they are, etc. Oh, yeah, that's just part of my, my latent fictional bigotry. It's the same reason I hate elves and such. I see. But, all right, what? one more thing we're going to deal with the battle tag. This is, I assure you, we're just yanking your guys' chains, though we are serious about this stuff. And then we're going to talk about D&D 5e. Before the podcast started, so I've mentioned that I have these Battletech dice, right? That they're giving away at Gen Con and they ran out of them. And I've managed to get a hold of a bunch of sets of them. So I've got five sets that I am prepared to give away. And I asked Vince, I said, Vince, you know, you're a creative guy, right? You like Battletech, and you contributed to D&D 5e, so you've got some chops here. Help me come up with a way to give away, what sort of contest are we going to do to give away these sets of dice? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a place where you can go, and you can enter a plot hook for either a MechWarrior game or a Battletech tabletop game, so like the, the mech on mech type stuff, if you want to just give me a scenario for the mechs. And I'm going to cap this out at is something in the neighborhood or 200, 300 words, because I want you to give me a hook here. I don't want you to just go on and on and on. I'm not looking for a full module here, but I want you to give me a plot hook. And here's what we're going to do. If you send this to us, you are accepting that these are going to be released. And what we're going to do is we are going to release these as a compiled document of plot ideas for Battletech, or more broadly speaking, science fiction games, and people can look at that and they can pick out of this what their favorite ones are. And then what's going to happen is we are going to open up voting for a little while where you guys can come in and vote for your favorite ideas, and the top five ideas are going to get sets of these metal really nice Battletech dice. And I'll link a picture to them in the show notes again in case you've forgotten how awesome they are. Now, you may be saying, what if I don't know anything about Battletech? Well, Vince presented the angle before the show that I don't entirely disagree with, which is something like this may be best appreciated by someone that's into Battletech. But if you don't know anything about Battletech, but you're interested in learning about it, this is not going to stop you Because if you can give me some basic plot or scenario hooks that would work in any science fiction setting, don't feel compelled to get all the proper nouns exactly right. You can just say, hey, the group runs into an antagonist that's doing this and they need to do this to overcome it. Then that's an acceptable entry. So if you can write plot hooks in general, then you're good to go. So I'm going to put this form up. You're going to see it in the show notes for this episode, or depending on how long this goes, because we've got a lot of stuff to cover with Vince, maybe two episodes, and you're going to have a time frame to get your entries in, and then we're going to have a period of voting, and the top five people are going to win sets of these metal enamel-painted Battletech dice. All right, so Vince, let's get down to talking about D&D 5e. This is something that uh, we uh, joked about, but rather honestly, that we were not entirely well informed on, which is something we're trying to correct. And so we've got a list of questions here from our listeners. And Brodor and John have both played in D&D 5e campaigns now. And we're going to get to that in a sec. But first, I want to ask you a question, which is you are credited as a rules consultant. Now, I know what a rules designer does. They come up with the rules. And I know what a play tester does because they play the game and then come back with feedback about what did or didn't work. And God knows that within the role-playing hobby, 
there is no shortage of opinions on what rules do and don't work and what tweaks would make them just absolutely impeccably perfect. So my question for you is what exactly does a rules consultant do? How did you fit into the design process? What did you contribute to? What did they ask you about? Give me a job explanation here. Sure. The one sentence is, I was called in to give my opinion. Exactly what you said. There's a lot of people with opinions out there, and I got lucky enough to have mine be counted at an early stage and and to be in, you know informing to the design process at a very early point. So when I knew I was coming on here, I had to go back through my emails and my records to like re-piece together in my mind the history of how this all came together. But it started in, I'm going to say March of 2012, when I was talking to Mike Merles at a convention and we were talking about, you know, D&D Next. And I said, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm very keen. I just wrote a new fantasy game, which he had seen. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm really keen to participate in D&D Next, especially given kind of short explanation of it and what it was was at that time period. And he said, well, I, you know, I like what you've written in the past. I like what you did or whatever. So sure, I'll get this over to you and basically give me your feedback. So sometime not too long later, I got a big packet of sort of the where the game was at at that point. So this is sort of early in 2012. And it was kind of the entire game. And of course, you know, there's NDA and all that. So, I mean, I'm not talking, I wasn't talking about it with anybody, but I had, I read the whole thing. And basically that first time around, I had about a week to ingest whatever the hundred and some pages of it was, and then provide like detailed feedback at a high and granular level. So I wrote up about uh, like a 35 page document back to them about both high-level things and low-level things, individual sentences that I thought didn't work or pointed at concepts that I felt weren't D&D or something like that or, or th- things that I thought were really good and should absolutely stay in the final product, all of that kind of stuff. And then that cycle just kind of continued throughout the process as the game evolved. So you contributed to the product as a whole. It's not like they came to you and said, Vince, we need you to write up rules for cleric healing or something like that. Correct. Okay. Now, is there, just out of curiosity, accepting once again what I just said, that you are contributing to the product as a whole, so it sounds like your fingerprints are all over the book. Are there a couple things within the rule book that you feel this was your idea specifically, or this was something that got radically revised or developed as a result of your feedback? All right. So I'll use this moment to give my little disclaimer to your listeners, which is... sure. I am a freelancer. I am not an employee of Watsi, and anything I say should not in any way, shape, or form be taken as the opinion of all of the wonderful people at Watsi who I, I love and very, very much and are great guys and gals. Also, as part of that process, I never knew exactly what they were or weren't acting upon, right? Exactly as you might imagine, I'm giving a lot of feedback, as were seven other consultants, and so it all kind of goes into the machine, and then some sausage was coming out, but you never really know where you were moving the needle, right? Not really. You couldn't be sure that somebody else didn't reach the same conclusion and they happen to read the other person's first. That being said, I will submit that I strongly believe that there is one thing that I had a positive effect on because I saw what it was before and I saw what I submitted and I saw what it was after. And the after looks a lot closer to what I had written in my feedback versus what it was before, and that's the bard. (laughs) The first inclination of the bard I really didn't like. I love bards. I have a special place in my heart for bards, and they are my favorite sort of archetype of all time. And I wrote about a 20-page sort of research paper on bards and how I thought the bard class should look based on that versus what it was and what came out was more in line with that. What were the things that you hated about the original draft that you fixed? So the original bard in the in the first draft was much closer to the conception of the way bards were kind of split up and acted in fourth edition, which I always felt wasn't really any historical pedigree of a bard. Part of the problem with Bard, I'm, this is going to bore your listeners, but also I'll try to do it quick. Oh, no, of, no, trust me. They're all over the forums yelling at me about how much I don't like Bards. Okay. They love talking about Bards. Please, Bard it up. All right. So part of the issue with Bards is that they are the most conflicted class in the history of D&D. Most classes have a pretty solid identity. Bard has 
uh, a civil like identity crisis. That is a fact. Yes. Yeah, so in first edition, for your listeners who didn't go back that far, but and, and traditionally historically, bards were Celtic knowledge keepers that had begun the path toward Druidism, but never finished the final rituals that sort of sealed them to silence uh, and prevented them from sharing knowledge. So they never were fully inducted into Druidism. Uh, and as a result, they became sort of knowledge keepers and occasional storytellers. It was a part, but it was more of just they were the cultural books because there was the writing and obviously reading wasn't very common. We move into second edition and the bard becomes that fighter, wizard, thief, troubadour more archetype, right? Which doesn't look very much like that pseudo druid he was in first edition. And to me, that actually framed what bard is. Bard needs to be both of those things because the, the crux of bard is all about knowledge. And so either the bard is more concerned with sharing it or gathering it and that's the distinction in bard the original first edition druid was more concerned about gathering it and would share it secondarily almost just as a nature of what they do the second edition bard was more concerned about sharing it and would pick it up incidentally by nature of wandering around to share knowledge and then learning what everybody had to say and what they were doing did you play the game witcher 3 uh i did not have you played anything in the witcher series i i cannot say that i have okay so i'm kind of on a bender for that right now because i've been really enjoying that game but one of the at least semi-major characters in that is a bard by the name of Dandelion, who fits that later troubadour mold, where he's charismatic, he's kind of a womanizer, he knows a little bit about a lot of things and has connections in a lot of places, and you know has a little bit of skill in just about everything. But truth be told, apart from the random trivia and such he knows... He's not the sort of person that you're going to rely upon. And this fits in very well with the latter incarnations of the Bard. And it's interesting to hear you describe the Bard as almost what sounds like a druidic version of a non-cloistered monk. Do you feel that D&D 5e captured that? Do you feel the Bard is more true to what you believe they were historically or how they ought to play? Yes, I do. I, I really do. It's not as first edition or historically accurate as it or accurate is really a misused well, sure. word here because yeah. we have we. I mean, we we know very little about that time period. The Celtic people didn't leave a lot of records behind, and the um, Romans destroyed what they did. Right. Sure. But hey, I look. My people were there to help. Okay. I don't. Yes, so. we were. That's exactly. <laughs> we built roads. Damn it. Exactly. We were trying. Look, you you use these now. We would throw silverware at you. So at any rate. Yes, because if you look at the two sort of builds of Bard that are in the 5e PHB, what you're going to see is one is about lore and feels in tone much more like that Bard that I'm describing that's about collecting the lore and gathering knowledge. And the other is more of sort of the troubadour man of action, right, that that the later Bards have become. And I, I like both of them. I don't think either of them are bad. I think they're both very now critical parts of the tradition and that's the thing about D&D tradition matters more in D&D than I think any other RPG like you're both bound by it and empowered by it yeah do you feel that was something that kind of constrained you as you were dealing with the fact that 5e has to sit in some kind of tradition with the prior I'd say four editions, but actually if you subdivide into AD&D and 3.5, it gets to be a lot more. So let's just say X number of editions. Or did you kind of feel like this is more of a game that was in a position to strike out on its own to really differentiate itself? I mean, almost with a break in continuity. I guess what I'm asking is how did you balance that? Because I can't imagine you went to one extreme or the other. Okay, so I, this is actually a pretty interesting thing, and I and probably one of the reasons why I was involved. I had published a couple RPGs right before I got involved in D&D Next, a role-playing game called The Legacy of Heroes, which if anybody is curious or for a, I suppose, pseudo-pre-5e thing that you don't want to play, you can go get it for free from DriveThruRPG since I made the book free. But at any rate, what we were attempting to do with that book, with The Legacy of Heroes, was synergize all the editions of D&D into one project and into one game. And that very much was what it's about. And one of my other favorite game designers, Mark Rosewater, has this very famous saying that restriction breeds creativity. 
And I think that's absolutely true. That's true when you're making characters in a game, when you're designing a world, and when you're designing a game. Those kinds of restrictions you place on yourself breed your creativity. And so the real challenge was, can you make both grognards happy and make it exciting for new players and that's a tough line to walk you have to speak in the vernacular of four different editions of dungeons and dragons find those core elements that are the heart of the game the sort of beating heart and then somehow synergize that with something that still takes into account all of the technological evolutions and i don't mean computers and stuff i mean like game design as a technology has evolved greatly in the last 20 years So you have to both speak to that classic history and then integrate all those new things. And they did a really good job on the whole. I I concur. I mean, as as a gamer, as a person who's played second, third, three, five, four, and now five, I, I certainly think they succeeded. All right. So let's walk through. I've got a whole bunch of questions here from our listeners. So let's start walking through some of these. And Vince, you had sent me back some preliminary answers, but I'm going to give you a chance to talk to these. And I'll try to credit them where I I have credit, which I believe is all of them. But let's start off with this one. Uh, This comes from Keith. I'd like to hear a general talk about what discoveries were made during playtesting and how the game mechanics evolved from that. Sure. So, and I think in my response to you, I said that the game changed a lot. And you know, in, in getting ready for this, I went back and looked at all of the rule sets that I had since the first one in 2012. And there were a lot of what I would call fairly significant changes to a lot of rules. That being said, a lot of the core that was there at the very nascent beginning of the game was there all the way to the end. So things like advantage and disadvantage, that was there in the first draft that I ever saw. I don't know when it popped up, so it popped up before me. And was obviously there until the the publishing. I think what happened in it was, if I was going to sum this up at a really high level, the first incarnation of the game, to me, felt a little more like it leaned more heavily on OD&D and second than it did on the latter editions. They are all there. So we're just talking about what's emphasized. Whereas through playtesting and additional work and design, it fell a little more toward emphasizing third. Now, there's still plenty of all of the rest of those in there. And second is still very strong in there, but I think it now leans, if it's not 25, 25, 25, third is probably chewing up 30 or 35%. I'm going to skip down a bunch of questions here. I have them in a particular order, but I think I'd rather follow them in a logical order than the numeric order I sent them to you. There was a question that came in from Matt, and I'm paraphrasing it here. But how did the existence of Pathfinder, uh, particularly its success during 4th edition, influence 5th edition? Because you just talked about how you said when it came out that it had more of of a 2nd edition sort of feel to it. But as it went on, it seemed to drift closer to 3rd edition. And it's no secret that uh, there have not been many points in RPG history when an RPG even briefly eclipsed D&D, it, it has happened at a few points. But certainly the most recent example that I'm aware of is Pathfinder eclipsing D&D 4th edition. And I'm not going to ask you to speak to the uh, business decisions of Wizards of the Coast or Hasbro. But I am curious, do you feel the drift of the rules back towards 3E? Was that influenced by the existence and success of Pathfinder? Was there an attempt there to try and capture some of the audience that would prefer to go to D&D, as they're calling it, 3.75, as opposed to going to a fourth edition? Well, so my answer, yes, is just my own individual opinion. I, I have no vision behind the veil on any kind of that. But Yes, absolutely. Okay, so what I will say is, yes, but not in the way you described it. I think okay. you have the wrong cart and the wrong horse. Fifth edition was the largest playtest in history, Okay, which previously Pathfinder was the largest playtest in history. So just to kind of lay that level setting. And I think that it's not much of an inference to assume that a huge percentage of the people participating in that playtest probably also played Pathfinder to some degree. Sure, yeah. Right? Maybe not every day, but some amount. And I I think, of course, they brought those expectations to this new game. And so my guess is a lot of the feedback that all of those people who had deep Pathfinder experience was, was them pushing the design to say, we'd like this to feel a little more, you know, third edition-esque. And I don't want to deal with the little points, but, you know, whatever point along that timeline you like. 
And so I think it wasn't that Watsy sort of made this top-down decision, again, just my opinion, to say, hey, we're going to grab a bunch of these Pathfinder people by making it feel more like 3-5 or something. I think it was the people playtesting it saying, we want it to feel more like 3-5. We like this so far. Give us a little more. And they said, okay, we'll give you what you want, right? I think, though, and I've said it on the mics before, I think the interesting thing about 5th edition for for me as a gamer, but also when I was a retailer, is is that unlike, and again, this is just my perspective, unlike 4th edition that didn't really feel like D&D, it was a good, interesting, well-balanced game, but it didn't feel like D&D, 5th edition does a really good job of feeling like D&D, but obviously is a different game than 3rd edition or 3.5 or 4th edition and certainly Pathfinder. And I think that if you hold the two games against one another, Pathfinder is a far more crunchy, complicated game. And 5th edition feels to me much more like a simple, lighter, more traditional D&D. Yeah, and I don't want to read into the thought process of the designers but like for example the advantage disadvantage system to me actually seems very reminiscent of fate right you know but i will say broadly speaking that first edition second edition third edition of course you want to throw in three five a d d whatever all of these editions did feel like iterations upon a theme you know, you could feel there was a relationship between them. And to some extent, they're interchangeable. I mean, I know that's not perfectly the case, but if you had a first edition module, you could probably play it in D&D 3 or 3.5 or something like that without a whole lot of shift. But And I'm not going to put Vince on the spot here, but I'm just going to tell you my personal tutorial. When I played 4th edition, and I've said this many times over, it wasn't D&D to me. It was tabletop WoW. It, it very much felt like an MMO. It did not feel like another edition of D&D to me. So, and so it's great to see 5th edition sort of pushing back to that. This next one, this is another question from Keith. This is one of his favorite questions that I ask of anyone in general. What is the top 5th edition myth that you would like to dispel, i.e. what are the most common misinterpretations that you would love to correct? Sure. So I, I think my, my number one to you was that the game is too simple. People feel like because they're not looking at a coffee table book that's going to collapse your coffee table, that suddenly there's not enough to explore there. I think the game is more or less right on where it needs to be complexity level to be very successful in the modern marketplace. So people play games differently now. The style that probably you and I play in where we get together and we have a weekly game and we spend four or five or six hours playing at a time, I'm not sure that that's really the model that the that newer generations are going to universally attach to. I think they will be shorter. I think they will want to be able to play quicker. I think they will want to be able to play less often and pick up more easily because that's the nature of all entertainment now, the games on your phone, in your pocket, and everything like that. And so I think that you have to have it deep enough to allow people who play as we do, you know, in one or two a week game to explore, but you have to have it. And by the way, that doesn't all come from rules. That comes from the depth of the setting, the depth of the possible uh, narratives, the, the rewards that the GM can give, and also the mechanical things that could be explored. It's all of that. But it also needs a level of simplicity that lowers that barrier of entry. And barrier of entry is a big, 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 big deal to me. It's, it's the biggest deal to me in game design. And it lowers it right to the right point. So I feel like it struck a really genius middle note. So I don't think it's too simple. I think it's right on. Because anybody who thinks that, try to put yourself in the shoes of a brand new person staring at this. It's going to feel insanely complex to them, even as it is. Right. The other thing I would, I would choose to dispel would be that the game is edition x it's just edition x as i said i think it's a really good mix of all of the editions they did a great job of hitting notes from throughout the history and preserving the tradition i don't think it's really any one edition oh no me neither do people say that do people just say oh this is third reskinned i spend probably more time than i should reading comments and yes, that will pop. So up. you spend any time at all reading? Correct. Comments. At least one second of my life has. I been see. Reading well, comments. That's too that's much. Clearly, far too much. Uh, yeah. As a content creator, I can tell you that's something I've had to learn over the nine and a half years of doing this podcast. Is you're probably better off not reading the comments. <laughs> 
Because I don't know. Anyway, well, I was going to say I I think that saying that it's it's simply edition X reskinned is a completely unfair assessment. I mean, I don't think that they've actually given the game any real opportunity or any real chance. Because one thing that I would certainly say positively about 5th edition is that it, it uniquely feels like its own edition. It feels like a strong, natural evolution of previous editions. I also think that's somewhat of an unfair characterization because, of course, 5th edition is D&D reskinned. I mean, and I know some sure. people may say, well, I'm missing the nuance of the point there, and I probably am, but I guess that's kind of my knee-jerk reaction to it is, I mean, if you say, well, 5th edition is 3rd edition reskinned or whatever, I mean, well, isn't all of these editions are is incremental expansions or refinements upon the concept at its core of Dungeons & Dragons. So, of course, all the editions are reskinning of the prior editions. I don't know. Maybe some people feel it's too much. So. I, I think if you all played level one fighters forever and you had a really lazy GM, fifth would probably feel a lot like third. But certainly not if you got any deeper than that. And, and it certainly does not smack of fourth to me at all or second. I've never played OD&D, but I'm sure it's nothing like that because nothing is anymore. Okay, but, so all right. the next one comes from one of our own hosts, Wayne. And he had a question about what is, and you said that in your response to me when we were prepping this, that this is probably more than you can get into. So I'm only going to ask you for a high level answer, begging our audience's patience that this is not going to cover all of the detail or nuance that is possible in this discussion. But what was the general philosophy of scaling HP versus armor classes, of course, at least at the simplest level? Armor class is the difficulty of injuring something, whereas hit points is the degree of injury that something can sustain. Uh, and so I'm curious what, or Wayne is curious, what was the philosophy there or what was the conversation like about how to scale those two together? Because if I'm not mistaken, armor classes actually got scaled down quite a bit in 5th yes. edition. Yeah. And so what was the conversation like there? One of the keys to the design philosophies of 5th edition, as as communicated to me, is the value of a bounded system. And and this has been expounded upon a lot in the various articles that are out there. So if you're curious as to what I'm talking about, you can Google foo it and you'll find all sorts of things about bounded systems. And the AC system as it exists in 5e is a very bounded system. It was one of the geniuses of 2nd edition is that there were bounded systems everywhere in ability scores, in armor classes, in how much constitution could contribute to your hit points if you were a Mm non-fighter. Little genius things that, not to tangent, but slight aside, everybody would realize the genius of 2nd edition if game designers put sidebar boxes explaining their design choices into the game. The great crime of that edition is that there was no explanation. Everything clearly had a great amount of thought. But as a reader and a non-game designer, it's almost impossible for you to understand why these opaque choices are made. 12-year-old me did not get that (laughs) hit point distinction and was very pissed about it. But 36-year-old game designer me, after researching it for years, was like suddenly the light bulb flipped on. And I was like, oh, I see what they were doing. Holy crap, they were geniuses. All right. Did you rail against level and race-based maximums? (laughs) because i certainly did when i was a 12 year old but now that i go back and like looking at all of the things that elves and dwarves can do and how long they live and and that sort of thing i I look back at that warning note in the 2e dmg about how if you let them all hit level 20 humans will probably be nothing but slaves and breeding stock (laughs) i think they were probably right but anyway continue no, that's fine. I was always a fan of the soft cap where you, the experience started like scaling really yeah, high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because I felt like that felt more appropriate. Anywho, that aside, now to move back to the specific, bounded systems are very valuable because they flatten the advancement curve of a game, which I think is incredibly important to D&D. Mm-hmm. It needs flat advancement. When games shoot exponentially, bad play happens. Period. End of story. But what we're really talking about in this specific, because at first it seems like the same thing. If it takes me four rounds to defeat a monster because I I miss three times and I hit it once and it goes down, that is to say scaling armor class, right? It gets real high. Or I hit it four times, but it takes all four hits to bring it down, i.e. it's a big bag of meat, 
right? Shouldn't that be the same experience? It took me four rounds to defeat the monster. The end is the same. And my argument is, no, that's not even close to the same thing. Uh, In fact, it's incredibly different and speaks to very deep-rooted human psychology. I am a big believer that if you're a game designer, you better bone up on your behavioral economics because that's where all of the secrets to incentives and game design lie. And humans really, really hate zero value payoffs on effort. Like we hate that. That's a terrible thing for us. So if your action is taken and you get nothing from it, i.e. you miss, that's a negative feeling immediately. And what you got to remember is every negative emotion is about seven times as powerful as the equally positive <laughs> emotion. Okay. So one miss is where it has the same negative effect on you as seven hits. I, I agree completely. And, and I think a fight where you're guaranteed to kill an opponent in four hits and exactly four hits versus a fight where you have a one in four chance of hitting an opponent for a single shot, but you have a three out of four chance of missing him every time are radically different experiences from every game design and psychological standpoint. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, because, of course, it's only the law of large numbers, right, that's going to guarantee you ever even hit it all. Right, right. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure Wayne, who asked this question, is, if I remember right, is a classically, let's just say he doesn't have the best luck with rolling dice, if I remember from his previous uh-huh. stories. That is correct. So, you know, he is not the guy who wants super high ACs where one hit brings down the monster. That's going to guarantee he has a negative experience in that game if he really rolls bad all the time. So, yeah, all, all of that said, hit more. It's a more positive experience. Adjust monsters' hit points accordingly. But all that being said, that's really, as you said, this is a whole episode because this is really only the first bite at the apple. Sure. Um, it takes so much more to make a combat compelling because if you really just sit there and one, two, three, four, you're out. It's just that old Looney Tunes thing where Bugs was like the pitcher and he throws the one crazy curveball that just strikes out the whole team. It's just boring. So the next question comes from Jin Dragon. I don't have his or her real name, so Jin Dragon it is. And Jin Dragon asks if I remember right, if both your class and your background grant training the same skill inherently, you're allowed to pick any other skill instead. Was there a reason they didn't limit the choice to what the free skill would be? So, again, I don't have a hard answer because I wasn't exposed to that level of decision making. I didn't sit in, like, you know, the design room. But I'll tell you from my personal perspective, it's exactly the right choice. In general, if you can avoid putting something in a bucket, do it, right? Like when it comes to choices like this, the more buckets you make for no reason, the more chances you give for your players to fail or make bad choices or be forced into something they don't want. The worst thing about character creation in a rules-heavy game is when you have a conception in your head of character A, you go through the rules of the character-making process, and what comes out the other side is character A prime, because that was the closest you could get, or even worse, character B, because that's just where the mechanics walked you, right? Skills are so inherently situational and and kind of GM-educated and a personal thing. Why not would be my answer, right? Like, why I would turn the question around. Why limit it? What value is there in it? Why not let the person have fun and define their individual character? There's nothing game-breaking or disturbing about it, so... Let them have a good time. And I think from an RP standpoint, it's generally easy to explain why your character would know something that would otherwise be out of their typical purview. Uh, You know, for example, uh, a fighter who grows up in, let's go with Forgotten Realms, they grow up in Candlekeep. Well, obviously, they're going to be exposed to a lot of very non-fighter-ish sort of things. Um, Like reading. Like. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the fifth question, this comes from Apollyon. I'd like to hear the philosophy on why monsters play by a different set of rules than the PCs. Uh, I won't give another detailed complaint, but a thug has it all over a fighter of comparable level at early levels by having stuff they can do that the PCs can't. Yeah, so I've got a real big stick up my bum on this one. I could probably do an hour on this alone. Okay. Um, but, but the short answer is because they need to. Monsters have to function differently than the PCs by default because the PCs start with an inherent advantage. They are the protagonists. They are meant to win. They have a cohesive party with generally a incredibly varied set of abilities as well as a deep list of gear, experience, knowledge of the meta, all these sorts of things, right? 
And so monsters need to be able to act differently to, one, surprise the PCs, which is very important. Because if every thug is just a fighter um, and that's it, then there you're never surprised. You, you, once you meet the guy, you swing around at him, you get a general impression of like, oh, he's a second or third level fighter. I'm a second or third level fighter. I know what he can do. You hit him with this. That's where he's weak because that's where I'm weak. Bad. And, and even if people aren't metagaming like that, it doesn't matter. It's not about using it in the battle. It's just the player can't help but be let down because there's no discovery there, right? Some part of the game is exploration, and exploration means learning it, how, you, how your foes surprise you. The second thing I would say is they don't have to be different, right? Like the GM can just as easily make a bunch of second-level fighters. It's not hard, or first-level fighters, and throw them at the party. No prohibition against that whatsoever. Um, the worst enemy in every edition of D&D is the enemy party group, right? Like, oh, yes. that is the most deadly group. Forget dragons, forget demoliches, forget archdemons. The the dark mirror of the party will murder you faster than, than any of them. At, at early levels, absolutely. I, I think the way that very big, very bad monsters scale up in time, a level 10 fighter is not as nasty as a challenge rating 10, you know, gargantuan ogre or whatever have you. But definitely at the at the level one to five range, I would I would agree with you completely that that oh shit, these guys have the same toolbox we do. I'm about to get color sprayed by a level two wizard and knocked out <laughs> and killed in my sleep. That right. that scares PCs and it should. Yeah, it's very frightening. Exactly. I mean, yeah, you don't want to. The second the enemy has a cleric who can heal, you're yes. like, oh crap! Yes, they can. Move yes, the, they have green magic that moves the bar back up. We're screwed. Run. I was reading. Uh, Jonathan tweets AMA yesterday on Reddit, and he just said, if you're playing D20 and you're not taking levels of cleric every level, you're basically wrong. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's an argument to be made for wizard, but yes. He he told the story of the barbarian he played one time who took a level of barbarian for the flavor and then started taking levels of cleric because he wasn't an idiot. Of course you take levels of cleric. <laughs> That's pretty solid. I, I like that. Yes, I was always a I was always a big proponent that the cleric was by far like so in second edition D and D most frightening party from a PC perspective was the party of like specialist priests out of yes. fates and avatars. Yes, yes. Long. If someone cracked open the complete guide to priests in <laughs> second edition, and I saved up and bought that thing at five bucks a lawnmower uh, when I was in middle school, there were some real good bills as second edition clerics. The days of whining and forcing someone to play one so that we could have 1d8 cure light wounds uh, were not those days because, holy crap, they could do anything and they could do it without memorizing. Yes. So my two final quick points on this would be number three, any of those things that the, the monsters do that is special, if your DM is good and, you know, I think most of the DMs probably listening to this are because they've been listening to many episodes of your great advice. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, thank you. Absolutely knows that have a conversation with your dm and say hey i saw this fighter do this cool thing in a fight with us my guy wants to learn that trick as well what do i need to do how can we build it into the narrative that i go learn this thing the gm's happy because he gets a quest or a, uh, you know a narrative uh, impetus out of you you're happy because at the end of that road is a neat reward that makes you truly special right that's not something on book that's not a feat no other player in the world has that just you have that and it's something specifically about you and so I, I i don't think there is anything they can have that you can't i think there are things they can have that will surprise you and i think that's in the end a very good thing there was a saying that chad and i had for years and years and years we stopped using it because now that the man is deceased it comes across <laughs> as a little bit tasteless but the saying at the time when he was alive is we'd be playing D and D. And somebody would say, well, I want to do this. And somebody else would say, well, the rules don't cover that. And the response was, what? Is Gary Gygax going to show up at your house and break your kneecaps? And he, and I'm paraphrasing here a bit because I don't remember the exact quote, but he himself said something similar, not about attacking people, but he made the comment that the greatest in-house secret of the RPG industry is that one day the DMs are going to discover they don't need books at all. Right. And, yep. and right. And I don't know if I completely agree with that because I think there is some advantage to having a game that's been tested and structured by a third party. But the point is, nonetheless, that there is no reason 
that any gaming group has to feel absolutely constrained by what is available in the rule books. And so, you know, if people feel really perturbed that an NPC can do something that plausibly they could do. I mean, we're not talking about like, you know, they can look at you and disintegrate you then. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I don't see any reason why you can't work that into the game, even if that's not technically a fighter feat or whatever it is that they would classify that under. Yeah, I, I want to meet the PC who goes for the look at you and disintegrate you thing, because I will happily send a PC along that quest to get the look at that. I get to disintegrate things I look at, and it's going to end up like Midas's touch. They're going to be very unhappy. <laughs> Come home to their family and turn them into a yes. fire attack. Yeah, just, just don't look down while you pee. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of bad consequences from that one. That or can only be perfected by staring into a mirror. So- I want to know, because I, I've said on the show that I, I, I love Monty Cook and I love his rule writing and I, and I want to fillet him. But I'm curious, who is the genius that came up with just the, the, the sheer, elegant, simple, hey, you have this spell? That's a great spell at first level. If you want to memorize it at higher levels, it has this additional effect, as opposed to meta magic feats and all of that big crunch and complication. I think that's one of the best rules in 5th edition, is how they broke spells down, and how a lot of them have additional effects if you just cast it from a higher level spell slot. That is a great question, and I don't have an answer for you. Because, I, first of all, I agree well, with I, you. Well, I know I owe someone a blowy. That's what I know. <laughs> what I will say is that that appeared pretty early on, and so I think that, honestly, it, it wasn't in the initial doc. If I remember right, in the initial doc, it still looked more like traditional wizards, okay? There was still some of the, like, you can cast it at a higher level, but the actual spell casting method was a little different. It wasn't the kind of looser system that isn't the hard Vancean that we ended up at. So somewhere over that time period, you know, somebody stumbled upon this this very fluid system. The I can cast it at higher levels to extra effect was there from the beginning, but the nature of how you prepared them in kind of this bigger pool wasn't. Hmm. Is that a fair answer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I think that's where we're going to end this installment of the interview. Now, Vince has been kind enough to say that he can stick around, which is good because we have a whole bunch more listener questions that we want to cover so we've got a lot more ground to go over so if you didn't hear your question that you submitted to us sit tight and we should hit you up next week so in the meantime please do check the show notes for links to vince's projects and all the other stuff that we've talked about in this show and hang on because next week we are going to come back and have more discussion on some specific decisions that were made in D&D 5e. So Vince, thank you for joining us for this show and also for agreeing to uh, come back for next week so we can continue this discussion. Oh, I, I, I hey, as I said, well, I'll, I'll go all night next week, three weeks from now, absolutely. It's, it's an absolute honor and a pleasure, so thank you. Okay, well, thank you. And as for the rest of you guys, have a great week and great games, and we will catch you next time. See you. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2015. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. Fear the Boot is also a member of the Pulp Gamer Media Network of Shows. You can find other great shows in this network at pulpgamer.com.